0: Hello and welcome to the KBHH podcast, where we are looking at doing things differently in the equine industry. From new technologies, to equine behaviour, to well-being within equine practice, we've got something for you. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the show. One of the big talking points for working practices in the veterinary profession has been around recruitment, retention, and keeping your staff happy. And one massive talking point and area that has been a real growth area for discussion, I think it's fair to say, over the last few years has been flexible working. And Ebs and I are completely delighted that we are joined today by Sylvia Janska, our good friend and colleague and general lovely person to chat all about this. She is the company owner of Flexibet and is doing lots of work in this area.
1: Why did you become interested very
2: specifically
1: in flexible working?
2: I've always been interested in improving the vet profession. I mean, ever since a a student, really. I guess I was seeing what was happening in the profession, you know, when it comes to vets being disheartened after a few years qualified, a lot of burnout, a lot of mental health and and physical health, and it not being dealt with to my uh, imagination how it should be. I reunited with Jessica May, my now co-founder of Flexi. At this conference, we we were obviously catching up and we were sharing our, our life. And we've realized we had very, very similar problems or thoughts and that we were noticing in our own personal life. We didn't find any vet practices that would accommodate our needs. and And, and already at that time, we were sort of looking to stay vets, but actually enjoy our life to how we imagine it kind of how can we fit work inside our life but it didn't sort of start with oh we want to create a company on flexible work you know we were kind of just thinking about the more bigger picture or the problem that we were having really and then we started talking to a lot of employers and started seeing what the employers want to offer and what the employees need and kind of saw a gap in the middle that where they weren't meeting and so we created this sort of Flexible working survey two years ago, we had over 500 vets and nurses answer it. So we were just like, oh my goodness, okay, so people actually do want to talk about this. And so then we set up a company and a consultancy, and it's just kind of gone off that, really. From our survey, we found that attracting and retaining staff was the number one benefit of flexible working. And actually, 48% of employees are actually happy to exchange a percentage of their salary for more flexibility so people are not minding to earn a little bit less to have the kind of flexibility that they need so that's quite interesting really I thought and you know potentially a way to retain the staff the other the biggest benefit is that it improves well-being and the other thing that it improves motivation and I was actually just thinking about that today I believe that motivation is very very tightly linked with productivity more flexible Businesses seem to be more productive. And if it's one of the top three benefits is that it improves motivation. I think that's that's why if you're motivated to do your job, then you will be more productive. You'll do it quickly or do it better.
1: And along with motivation as well, I think it supports
0: the autonomy piece. We all seek purpose, mastery, and autonomy. The kind of long hours is almost like a badge of honor where, you know, I'm still here and it's eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night or whatever. And you know, I'm working so hard is kind of considered to be this great productivity thing. Whereas actually some European countries view that completely differently.
2: And I think there is a sort of a happy medium because, you know, everybody will have different needs and maybe somebody can do one job much quicker and a different job much slower just because of what their strengths are. Like, you know, I would be the one staying behind at five o'clock if if you give, give me Excel spreadsheets. But if it's, you know, talking to people and negotiating partnerships and so on, I'll, I'll get it done much quicker, right? So so I think it really depends what it is that you're asking the person to do. If you have the right person in the right role with the right responsibilities, they should meet certain, of. The time period to do that work in
1: your survey and your conversations as you alluded to earlier showcase this gap between employers and employees when it came to flexible working so when we're looking with the equine lens a very specific lens indeed what are we learning that we can help to make that gap super small and actually get them to
2: kind of jigsaw fit in when
1: it comes to the needs of, of both
2: That's a very important question. That's where, I guess, tying it back to the survey, we asked many quite detailed questions. One of them was just, we listed a whole number of concepts around flexible working and asked people to rank how important they are. And the survey was divided into employers and employees. So so we could compare if there's any gaps. So the same questions were asked employers and employees. And actually, they matched on almost all of the concepts except one. And that was being flexible with flexibility. And I think you can imagine what that means, but that is not my term. That is from another huge HR organization, right? That's not me making this up. What the gap demonstrated is actually that much more over fifty percent of employers thought that it's extremely important to be flexible with flexibility if you want flexible working to work in your business in your environment. Whereas over thirty percent of employees thought that that was important. There's many reasons why that might be, and I think oftentimes we go, oh, I'd, you know, if I need to leave at five, I need to leave at five, five. I can't be flexible, but it's all about that sort of give and take between the employer and the employee and meeting each other in the middle. Um, it's not necessarily that just because I need to leave on five one day doesn't mean that I can't be a bit more flexible with something else, whether that's time or or in other ways that I can help the business, right? And I think that is one of the key areas where the employers and employees actually qualitatively when I speak to either practices or employees, because a lot of employers have been trying to implement some flags and have been burned before, they are not being very flexible or are very scared of being flexible. And on the other hand, a lot of the employees that do become part-time are oftentimes blamed for being very inflexible for the team and for the business. And I think, you know, there are ways to try and solve that. That's not just saying, let's not do this.
0: What other sort of attitudes you've come across from the people not necessarily employer and employee, but perhaps employee and employee within practices around that
2: sort of scenarios. Even within the team, sometimes there can be a divide where the people who work part-time or basically do not work the full-time equivalent are blamed to be usually the, the inflexible ones. That is a common attitude. The practices that are making flexible working work don't have that. They've had conversations or the very culture of that workplace is such that it is recognized that some people need to leave on time, and some people have different requests. And it's identifying what is your key flexibility that you need, or key or take from the business. Okay, my take: I absolutely on I don't know Monday, Wednesday, Friday need to leave, but three o'clock, right? That's my non-negotiable. That's my take. But actually my gift might be something else. I might be able to work more weekends or do more out of hours because actually over the weekend, my uh, wife or my husband is at home taking care of the kids if we're talking about childcare, right? And and it's having that conversation within the team is the give and take, not just between employee and the employer, it's the give and take within the employees. Winding it back to specifically Equine with our uh, Flexi survey, the two most important factors regarding flexible working that we identified, or that people uh, answered, was the need to be able to swap shifts within a preset rotor, and that is actually pretty blanket across the industry. And the second one for equine was to be able to leave work on time for childcare responsibilities. So, you know, and these were specific questions, so this was sort of the most second most requested thing. So if we identify that that's a need. Okay, so what's next step? Let's let's have a conversation about it in our team. Yeah.
1: I love the way we're talking here about employer, employee, employee, employee. But I think in equine and across the board, but very much so, three of us are equine vets, right? So we, we kind of know this within our core. What can we be doing to get those clients on board? Because our flexibility impacts on them. How can we support that
2: A number of ways, really. One, when you boil things down, it comes to conversation and education. Not retrospectively, oh, sorry, this happened. Somebody else had to see or I have to leave or whatever. You know, somebody else has to pick up this case. It's being proactive about it. It's all shifting the mindset to a very proactive one. So, no, I can't be here next week on Tuesday for you, but I'll be back on Thursday. Can we meet on Thursday for a recheck or whatever that is? And the other thing is... So rather than having one equine client so dependent on you're my vet is, you know, start introducing the buddy system, right? So the fact that actually, you know, you are a client of our business, trust the business is employing vets where you should want any one of us. They would not employ somebody that can't see them or deliver for them. So, you know, and that's down to the vets really to be communicating that to our clients. Yeah, you can sort of start budding up and sort of saying, okay, well, I can't, but you know the two of us always see uh, each other's clients, or you know just just find what works for your type of client and, and your practice. Yeah,
1: I really love that, and it goes, I think actually the flexible working conversation between those the teams not only helps with the flexible working of recruitment and retention, it helps everyone understand who they're working for and perhaps how they want to influence who that is. What is that organization? What does it stand for? You know, what are its values? You know, and I, I said, yeah, I think that's a lovely, a lovely demonstration of, of of that. I think these conversations lead to far more than just the fix of flexibility. It actually opens up a conversation for, for so much more.
0: If you go into a practice that's been trading for 30 years, for example, always been the same, what we would call traditional working models where do you begin and how do you suggest that people start those conversations? What, you know, if you go in, what's the blank slate, Silv, I guess?
2: Well, I guess you've answered your own question by saying, what's the conversations, right? You know, everybody can talk. So, you know, you don't have to start implementing a whole new business strategy, literally just have a conversation with the team. And, you know, you can't move forward to start implementing different ways of working if you don't know where other people stand and if not everybody's on the same page so to find out you talk So you can have conversation starters as simple as what does flexible working mean to you? Because what does flexible working mean? It's such a broad term. It's just how do you want to work? How do you want to live? Right? Like a conversation starter could be, you know, what does flexibility mean to you? What does flexibility mean to this practice? You know, winding it back to our values. Like, is this something we value? Is this something that we should aim for? What would you change about your current workplace pattern? Or, you know, what actions could we take so that we ensure that any solutions are fair to everyone? Because oftentimes, either practices have been burned before by trying things, or there's been built up of resentment because things haven't been fair, or they're just, you know, maybe working in a very traditional manner, manner. So it's not necessarily up to the employer to say, this is I mean, it's, it's a type of leadership. This is how we're going to work full stop. But, you know, maybe a nicer way of leading the team is, okay, how do we want to work? You know, ultimately, you want a motivated team to have a successful business. So ask them, how do they want to work so that they stay? Yeah, very
1: much so. Very much so. I, I think it, it comes as no surprise that keeping the equine bet is possibly one of the hardest things to do. We don't, yet have the out of hours cover that our small animal friends do. So I just think if you, I think stories really, really sell this concept and facts tell them. So I just think if you had anything from your case study kind of uh, library, I think it'd be lovely to share.
2: I mean, yeah, I touched on one already about sort of buddying up. There, There is another equine vet practice that actually set up during COVID and they set up with sort of flexibility in mind, but what they do from the very start, from the interview stage, they try and interview in such a way that they find out what are the personal needs of the employee. They they do ask, okay, it's not necessarily okay. Well, we we kind of need to fill in a, maybe a full time equivalent position, but that doesn't mean I can't have two part time vets. Or if you need to work three days a week um, now would you be able to scale up later? And they have an employee that started on less and actually scaled up their work. You know, everybody's saying, oh, part-timers and everybody wants to work flexibly, i.e. work less. But there are so many examples there where maybe now I need to work less, but maybe later I I can work more. And it's knowing what your team can do. And that's, again, kind of bringing us back to that give and take. I can give you an employment now, okay, I'll take you for working less, but then actually you can give me more when you can't give me more.
1: A hundred percent. I love that. It's like, it's like the art, you know, the, the changing arc of needs as we go through our career. And I love the fact you're saying interview, why can't we bring those questions into our appraisals or our monthly one-to-ones or like anything changing for you about education, hobbies, sabbatical, children, care needs of family, own care needs, you know, whatever, you know? just because you want to you know to live a life so I just think that's um that's uh it's really good
2: yeah the the employee also needs to be obviously very self-aware you know sometimes it's very obvious if if you you have a child and that's your you know responsibility you know what you can and can't do if you don't have children or don't are not doing an extra study or something like that just be self-aware what what, what needs you have and negotiate and negotiate in a very, I mean that word, it can be quite a scary word, but I, I mean it in a very positive way because you want to start from a common place. You want to be happy, your employer wants to be happy. It's not the kind of negotiation of, I want to get as much as possible out of this employment or, you know, I want the highest salary, with the least amount of work. And, you know, that that's not negotiating. What we haven't spoken about is the
1: horse. What we all care about at the end of the day is keeping these horses as happy and healthy as possible. So that's the common ground, isn't it?
0: Just couldn't agree more. Oh my goodness, I love that. That's right up our street. The three of us, I think, speak from a, a very similar playbook, let's face it. But I think it's really interesting because in time, as I've said, you know, retention of equine vets is, if not the hardest, probably one of the hardest within the profession at the moment. I constantly meet practice owners who are saying, can't get a bet. And I think in time, the people who are having these conversations, being really transparent, being really open to change, open to discussion, those people are the ones that will keep and recruit. And I think actually the, the kind of cream will work its way to the top, as it were. So I think what, what
1: these podcasts are hopefully going to do, and I think what's great about what MSD here are really trying to kind of showcase is how can we do things differently? not to be annoying or just different, actually so we can push stuff forward and and enjoy our jobs more.
2: The easiest thing you can do is, even on your own, learn about what flexible working is and what it means to you. So think about it. Have a, you know, don't just, Go into telling, you know, your employer, if you're an employee, um, this is what I want, you know, be prepared to be flexible your way. So educate yourself. The second thing what teams could do is, well, have a conversation. So communicate about it, find out what flexibility means to each of you, what it means for the business, what are the gives and takes, how can you make it fair? Just be open and honest and transparent and talk about it thirdly I've already mentioned you know if if you're an employer recruiting so even at the interview stage try and find out how can you retain this best so why do they want to come and work for you how will their personal life maybe change because if you don't ask don't find out you don't know and maybe they do already you know we we can't predict what life will bring but we have some idea where we're heading or where we would like to head so start with the interview the the buddy system that i mentioned you know so try and educate the clients that it's not necessarily you they always need to see so try and redirect their attention to wanting to see your your practice not necessarily you or you can also as i said sort of buddy up with you know two vets seeing the same client is an easy way into that and thirdly there's another actually example from a vet practice I can give you specifically where they make sure that at the end of the day everybody finishes on time most of the time because they have certain ways that the vets overlap and they cover each other and actually they do make make it work that they finish on time. So uh, overlap your vets at the end of the day and and just pilot things, trial things, three monthly trials. And if you need help, I'm here.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Sylvia, for those amazing insights on flexible working. Now we're going to speak to Shelley about her experiences and setting up her own practice.
3: So, Shelley, Shelley, Shelley Cook, mum of two, equine vet, business owner, entrepreneur, and absolute go getter. It's absolutely wonderful to have you join us today and to chat through a little bit about your journey in equine general practice. I know you had a life before joining the profession, so we'd love to hear a little bit about that. And what your expectations of general practice before you entered the profession? And how have they matched up in reality as you've kind of gone through your career journey?
4: I had a bit of a wiggly start to my career. I did agriculture first, and then I went off and, and worked for a few years, getting experience in industries that I thought would be useful to me further down the track. I'd always wanted to be a vet, but just hadn't quite managed to do it the first time. So I went and I worked for, for companies like Coolmore, Uh, with foals and weanling sales and yearling sales and then i managed to pull all the funding together to go back and do veterinary medicine as a second degree my intention or my thought process about how it was going to be was kind of a bit james harriet-esque driving around the countryside having a bit of crack with people fixing horses and when i got into the industry it wasn't what i thought it was so but it was a much more high-pressured environment than I was expecting. I thought it was more of a, a kind of numbers game. You didn't get a chance to make true relationships with your community. I find that quite hard. So after having my first baby, I looked at seeing if there was career progression where I was and discovered that was not uh, an option for me. So when I was coming back from having my second baby I sort of started thinking about what I wanted to do and I have to be honest I really was thinking about leaving the industry as as a whole I'd had enough I didn't want to go back to where I was I knew I wouldn't be able to get the flexibility I needed to raise two babies and do my job to the level that I wanted to do it so I actually went and did the coaching course run by BDS and it gave me gave me quite a few eye openers and they were good. They were good eye openers, a lot of soul searching. But actually, I realized it wasn't the industry. It was the job I was doing at the time. So I still had that love of wanting to fix things and help people. But I just couldn't do it with my ethos and what I wanted where I was. So I uh, packed up my little van with all my kit in it. And me, myself, and I started running an equine practice, equine-only practice. I've now been doing that since the 19th of October 2020. Within three months, I had brought alongside my practice manager, Claire. Within another two months, we had our second vet, Lucy. Our ethos is different in that everybody in the team has a say. So we have meetings usually once every two weeks where... Everybody gets to sit down and help formulate how we're doing things and where we're going. And I know that none of us have ever experienced that in our lives previously, regardless of where we've worked. And we've got three office staff. Some of them have come from big corporations like McDonald's, for example. Others have have been in the equine industry or in, in the veterinary industry in terms of answering phones and others have just come from a horse background. So, you know, we've got a team of five now and it's fab it really is fab everybody gets to have a say there's never been a fallout or a difference of opinion in terms of where we should be going we've had a couple of instances in the last month in terms of flexible working because flexible working for me if you'd asked me pre children what was flexible working for those that had children I would have said oh it's part time and you kind of lose the drive and the enthusiasm for what you're doing and I didn't want to do that with my practice because a variety of reasons. Yes, obviously, I want to spend time with my children and raise them. But I also didn't want that to be the only thing I was known for it. So in terms of setting up the practice, we wanted to look after our, our clients. And I don't I don't just mean, you know, pat them on the head. I do mean have an actual relationship with them in terms of community. So we are very heavily invested in the local community. We give talks to Pony Club probably once every couple of months. We do we'll give talks to riding clubs. And again, it's all about preventative medicine. So it's talking to them about things like why foot balance is so important to prevent lameness, why it's important to warm your horses, why it's important to vaccinate your horses. And we kind of just do it with a bit of a, a difference, a different spin on it. So w- we have practicals. So last week I was lecturing to a bunch of riding club people and I'd actually got them a full skeletal leg, foreleg, and hind limb and we talked through all of those I also had a couple of dead legs with me so they could see the soft tissues attached to the bones but they could also see the bones it was really interesting from my perspective because it's the first time I've done one on that topic with clients and and others in the in the horse world in the local area and it was really interesting for me because I realized very quickly that none of us as vets have ever actually explained that you know the hip bone's connected to the shin bone not properly and we haven't explained that the hawk is actually the ankle joint and, and, and I mean I know people see this on our social media all the time but I don't think they actually understand it until they can see it in front of them. So we're all about visual learning because my ultimate aim is to see very few people for emergency situations that could have been prevented. The ethos is to obviously look after the client base but also look after the staff. So I basically had two people available who are qualified childminders to swing in and look after five kids if nurseries and schools closed. So that's what I mean about teamwork and our ethos. Our ethos is about we support you so that you can do your job and you have career advancement rather than because you happen to have had children, it being forced on you that you have to work part-time.
0: So just going back a little step, when you sort of very casually said, I set off with my van and I set up a practice. How much, if any, business experience did you have? How much business planning did you do, for example? How much did you actually set down what you wanted your business to be?
4: I did put quite a lot of effort into doing what I was doing. So I spent considerable time thinking about it before I jumped off the cliff without a parachute. I tend to work out what is worst case scenario as a person. And as long as I know what worst case scenario is and how to deal with worst case scenario, then I'm fine. Everything else is just the bits in the middle. So I didn't know if I would be successful. I hadn't worked at that stage in 14 months by the time I I actually set out on my first day. I didn't actually do any advertising, and all of our client base has been organically grown. So what I had on day one was I had a Wholesaler. I hadn't actually been in contact with any of the drug reps in the local area up until the point I opened my doors. So I hadn't been, you know, discussing deals with drugs or anything like that. I literally had a wholesaler, my van, and two computers and a card machine and a mobile phone. And I did have a website in play, but that literally went live the day I opened the doors. So I really did literally put all the stuff in my van and go. I think my first delivery arrived the Friday before I started trading. And I started trading on the Monday morning. God love my husband. His garage was commandeered. His man cave was commandeered for about probably three, four months until I got a dispensary put in place.
3: It's incredible to hear that go-getting-ness in you, Shelley. So when you were talking about as long as you knew the worst case scenario, You were good to go. So how did you go about finding that worst case scenario, working through that?
4: I basically worked out how much money I had to invest to get it up and moving. And I'm not a massive risk taker when it comes to owing other people money. I'm not good with that type of thing. So I needed to know how much I needed. So I did the math. I had an an ultrasound, an endoscope and an x-ray machine. Now, I didn't buy all of those outright by any stretch of the imagination, but I tried to keep as much of it through personal finance for me putting stuff on a loan or, I, you know, pay them back over time. I didn't fancy it. So my van, I bought my van outright because I had cash. I got a very good deal on my van and luckily enough, you know, even though it was in the middle of COVID, we hadn't quite worked out that there was going to be a shortage in microchips, for example. So the, the van prices at that stage weren't as overinflated as they are now. Luck had quite a lot to do with it. You know, people were still had the money from furlough and not going out. So there was buying of lockdown horses without vetting. So the work was there basically from the second week. So yes, it was a calculated risk. It wasn't a complete shoot from the hip. Where I've worked previously, they would have wanted a full business plan. To buy a new piece of equipment, whereas I've gone, yeah, it's probably going to work. It's probably going to pay for itself. I think we need it to give our clients a good service. So let's go and buy it.
0: I think that's really reassuring to hear for people because I think there's a lot of people who would first of all not feel particularly brave about taking a big step like that, but also thinking that you have to have every duck in a row before you begin. And also to talk about the kind of ins and outs of financing stuff, because actually that is really scary when you think about huge business loans, for example, or leveraging it against your mortgage or, you know, all those sorts of things like it's terrifying for people.
4: But from an equine practice perspective, if, you know, if you're setting up a smalls practice, that is expensive. You've got to buy a building. You've got to kit out the building. Whereas from an equine perspective, it's it's not as terrifying. You know, we're not talking half a million pounds. It wasn't near that. I basically had 50,000 to set up and I used 50,000 to set up, but that 50,000 also gave me a six grand buffer in the bank account. So that made it easier to catch myself. So that gave me basically five months of payments for my x-ray kit and my ultrasound. So I had that safety net from that perspective. And I know 50,000 is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's not me going up. I just threw 50K at it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you compare it to other parts of our industry, it's relatively inexpensive to set up.
3: Since 19th of October, 2020, um, perhaps you can share the, the growth that you've had in that time.
4: It's been fairly exponential, I have to be honest. So everything's been by word of mouth. So we've gone from, I think by the end of the first week, I had two clients and I think I had six horses and we're now sitting at just shy of 2,000 horses and 750 plus clients.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? it got goosebumps. It's
4: been slow build and, and that's what you want. I'd been in equine vet for six years. I was used to a manic on call during the night and a manic on call at weekends. And basically for the first year, I was like, it's too quiet. It's too quiet. It's too quiet.
3: Don't say the Q word. (laughs) Don't say that word.
4: And actually not getting hit with the sudden flurry when you use the dreaded Q word. But that's okay because from where I was working to here, the client base is a lot smaller. So it's okay to, to not worry about the fact that you're not horrifically busy. But because I'd had that for sort of five, six years prior to setting up on my own, it was quite scary to be quiet.
0: Would you do anything differently? Like, Or what advice would you give to Shelley starting out? Can you tell us a little bit about any of the kind of glaring mistakes? I'm sure you haven't made any.
4: I have. So glaring mistakes I've made. Not realising how hard it was to do everything. Not realising how many long hours were involved. I went in on my own. And it was a very lonely road for a little while. And there was a lot of outside pressures going on in terms of you know, dealing with the fallout from having not gone back to my previous practice. And it was hard. It really was hard. And yes, I did share with friends, but it's not the same. If you're not actually living through it, it's much more difficult. So I probably in hindsight would have got more help on board quicker. So I probably in hindsight should have had Claire in by the middle of November, end of November. So six weeks after I started rather than running it and believing i could do everything myself not because there were any major missed things but it just added the pressure to my day whereas when claire started because she was experienced in dealing with answering the phones for an equine practice all of a sudden i didn't have that extra responsibility sitting here on my shoulder going well if the phone rings what are you going to do you're working with a horse what are you going to do how are you going to make this look professional but at the same time not make people think you're not available So I think also not put as much pressure on myself. I'm a very driven person, but I also have very high expectations of myself, not necessarily anybody else. And probably thinking, ah, this is going to be a medium, middle distance run rather than this is a a marathon. And things change. Things do change in terms of what you're thinking about doing next, how you're planning to bring in business, how you're planning to maintain business. That changes depending on what the economic environment is doing. So, you have to be prepared ahead of it and well in advance to trim your sale. So, I would definitely have more support. So, I, I would definitely have had Claire in earlier. I probably would have had somebody doing my books because I'm, I'm not good with technology. Somebody managing my QuickBooks or my Xero because these days everything's online. No longer can go to the, your account at the end of the year with a load of receipts. It's got to be all digitally done. And the time for me to do it, because I'm quite slow on that stuff, was probably five, six hours a night, even though the day hadn't been that busy. So I was finishing most most nights at three o'clock in the morning to start off with, when in fact, if I had a bit of common sense, I probably would have done less sleep deprivation. On Did I mention my youngest didn't sleep at that stage at all either? So I was kind of balancing no sleep and no sleep, but from two different perspectives. You know, so I think in hindsight, I would have brought in childcare help sooner rather than believing that I could do everything. Depending on the generation you are, some of us were brought up by you know, the 1970s feminists, you know, burning the bras and we can achieve everything. Well, we can, but only if we have the network behind us, is what I would say. No, no woman is an island. No woman is superwoman. I mean, the number of people who say to me, Shelly, you must be a superwoman. I'm not, okay? I am just Shelly. I couldn't do half the stuff I've done in terms of setting up this business without the support of my husband and having people in the background to catch the stuff that I am dropping. So because my focus is a lot on the business, there will be times where I I do need other people to catch me or catch, you know, stuff that I, I can't get done. It's just being honest about that, not in a depressive way. I mean, it's been a great 20 months and I'm looking forward to the next, you know, 25 years. But at the same time, Having that support network. The the saying is about raising children, it takes a village. It's exactly the same in a business. And we have worked very hard in in our wee company to have the support for everybody. And it does work really well, but it's taken an awful lot of work to do that. And again, it's been about choosing the right staff to complement each other, thinking you can kind of throw it together. It doesn't work that way. Everybody's an individual but you need sort of not like-minded people in terms of yes men. You're not looking for yes men, but what you are looking for is you're looking for people who have different strengths to you.
3: It's a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? It's about supporting and finding that fit. And I I really enjoyed your reflection then. It's it's so important that you actually double down on your strengths because your weaknesses, in inverted commas, are someone else's like dream job, right? And we don't have to do everything everything alone. I think that's such a great reflection if you were going to do it again, don't you think? Definitely, yeah. I'm with you on bookkeeping. <laughs> no, nope. I really don't like it. Nothing with a spreadsheet. Nope. Yeah, I am like uh,
0: give that to somebody else, please.
4: Pretty much. So we have Richard, who's what I would class as a vet tech, so he comes out to difficult horses and stuff. That's the other thing we have. We have support in vet tech form to help us with difficult horses because that's the other problem with being an equine vet. You turn up to medicate a set of hogs and you discover that actually, you know, Mrs. Smith can't actually handle my for example, and actually Pi basically wants to kick the living daylights out of you. So in order to help you nerve block and help you, we we have people like Rich. And uh, the great thing about Rich is Rich likes numbers. It took us about five or six months to work out Rich-like numbers, but he now does the books. He does it one day a week. What would have taken me five, six hours a night? He does it in literally four or five hours one day a week. Send him Um, over. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's mine. I'm afraid I'm holding on to him. Use those strengths. So that's definitely his strength. He likes numbers. He's grown in confidence from a practical point of view because he's just submitted his first fat return. And that's great because you can see the confidence in him building. Same with some of our reception staff. They had a pretty rough ride at McDonald's. Just watching the the self-confidence as everybody sort of bounces off the positivity of everybody else's energy and strength. And it doesn't matter if you've got weaknesses, which is a very unusual thing to say in the vet industry. None of us are allowed weaknesses. No, we are allowed weaknesses. We just have to have the catch net behind us to support us and help those not be so big.
3: Absolutely. And I know from speaking to some of your other veterinary colleagues that they were scared to come in first, weren't they, and have team meetings and and huddles because they'd never had a positive experience in those spaces. Now they feel very differently and they can bring ideas forward. So I'm aware that some of your colleagues have come in and said, want to buy this bit of kit. This is the kind of niche I want to go down. And you've supported that.
4: Yes. And and that's what we do because, you know, I like my lame horses. I mean, I like my medicine too, but lame horses is kind of my thing. You know, I, I quite like sticking my head between a set of back legs and hoping for the best. I don't get it kicked off. Whereas Lucy really loves medicine. So we have supported and helped her develop her niche within the practice. I mean we, we still both do medicine. We both gastroscope we both endoscope but she was the one who wanted to, to bring it into place and into situ. We've done that with the same with our, our shockwave machine. So we have a shockwave machine because the shockwave machines I dealt with previously were focal sets. So, you know, tiny little handgun. This one's actually a radial one. So it's used in human medicine as well as in, in equine. It wasn't the cheapest thing I've ever bought. But at the same time, I can see the advantage of it for, for horses that maybe have musculoskeletal problems that aren't just as simple as. Barring stuff in by needle. And again, Lucy came to me with that idea. So rather than the focal set, how don't we go for a radial one and watch what we've done? You know, and I'm quite happy to support staff to fly. It's lovely to watch people who've walked in. And I mean, Lucy was the same as me. She was ready to leave the industry, which for the industry, in terms of the equines that we have in this neck of the woods, would have been a great shame. You know, helping her to get her confidence back and know that she wasn't going to be knocked back every five minutes or you know, she wasn't just a number has taken time, but, you know, she is a much happier person in her working life, but also her private life as a consequence, because both private life and and working life are are very closely interlinked. If you're not happy in one, then the other suffers, you know, I wanted a practice where, and, and I'm not going to use the tag of everybody's treated like family, because that's usually complete and utter nonsense. I wanted it to be a real community and that's what we've created. We've created a real community where everybody has each other's backs. I mean, I ended up in hospital a couple of weeks ago and I was meant to be on call that weekend and Lucy, without being asked, basically phoned me and said, you know, I'm picking this up, which having had as bad a scenario in terms of health previously, and I didn't get that support at the time because I was on call and I didn't have that support there at all. There was a discussion a couple of weeks ago or a couple of nights ago on on the Best Ego Go Diversify site on Facebook about what's flexibility. And yes, I did start it, but it was to find out what flexible working is for everybody because it's different. It's different on the life stage that you're in. And it's not a case of having listened to conversations about flexible working. There's been a lot said about, well, it's different stages in your life. You need different things. But also, I don't believe that just because you haven't hit that stage in life, That your needs and wants get wiped to one side. We have to work more as a community within the workplace to help everybody do what they need to do.
3: That's so, so true. Social media is littered in all the different groups on this side of the pond, the other side of the pond globally, that you know, you can't be a general equine practitioner and have a family. What what do you think we need to be doing to kind of smash that myth? Because it's not true.
4: I think everybody should just come and ride beside me for a day.
3: Well, look, you know, I'm I'm
4: knocking it out of the park. I mean, we've had, you know, as a vet practice, in terms of what our clients think of us, we're down to the final three for the equine business awards for best equine practice in the whole of the UK. So we, we know that we are doing the right thing by our clients. We know that we are doing the right thing by our staff. And, you know, both Lucy and myself have three kids in total under the age of five. And we're managing to smash it out of the park. And yes, there's always going to be you know, good days and bad days. Some days, you, you, you know, you're ready for the hills, but you're probably ready for the hills anyway, if you know what I mean. It hasn't been because of the precise place you're working in. It's just circumstance. And I would say that in comparison to where I was three years ago, there are a lot more good days for me than bad now. And it would have been completely the opposite way. And I think we as employers, but also staff need to start thinking outside the box a bit more. How we help everybody. because It's all fine and dandy saying, you know, my practice has a great work-life balance. Well, my great work-life balance would be completely different to yours, Ebony. Here's Naomi. Everybody has a different idea of what work-life balance is. And you know, we all say that we'd love to work to live, not live to work, but unfortunately life's not like that. So some people will will need to work to live. And some will need to live to work because that's how they're driven and how they're put together. And we need to stop trying to put loads of square pegs into circles.
3: Absolutely. I mean, can we have Shelley for be the president, please, <laughs> at some point? Oh, just can
4: Shelley for prime, just uh, for prime minister? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I've got enough to deal with. I think my husband would divorce me if I did that.
0: <laughs> so much knowledge and wisdom. I sometimes find it really demoralizing when people say, you can't do this you can't do that it's impossible to make that work and it's wonderful to hear such positivity from somebody who is doing it and is making it work and and actually has got a brilliant thriving growing practice exemplifying all the things that we love um, and everything that we're trying to talk about in this podcast so uh, Shelley thank you so so much for your time it's been really wonderful to chat what an amazing show many thanks to today's guests if you want more
1: information, have a look at the show notes or drop us a line at kbhhuk@msd.com.
0: at